Our original thing was um, us bumbling around and um, going to visit people that we'd encountered, rather like in the lovely way that you describe in the book. And the first one we did, we went um, out and saw June. Um, in our front room, room. <laughs> actually had some soup they're part of the yeah. concept but it was very high concept originally it was like we're actually going to go and have soup <laughs> we had some like background effects of like June yeah. making some soup and tea it's a shame because I think soup is probably what I need right now <laughs> <laughs> hello so welcome Polly to the Relational Soup podcast. Now, this is something that's myself, Beverly Barnett Jones, and my lovely brother and comrade, Tim Fisher, occasionally put out when we're yes. reflecting on our kind of meanderings around the social care system, the work that we're doing, the feelings about the kind of world that we're living in. We'll come together and say, let's do a little bit of a pod. Focusing on interesting people who've got an insight and something to say about the world that we've existed in as practitioners, because I think if you add it up, we've got 45 plus years together out in the field. Um, so welcome. Just going to give a brief introduction. We have today with us the lovely, wonderful Polly Curtis. She's an author and journalist, and she is dedicated to reporting on social justice. She's worked at the Tortoise, the Huffington Post, uh, managed the media system for the British Red Cross and also worked as an education editor, Whitehall correspondence, news editor. Oh my God, it goes on. Digital editor at The Guardian. You're going to give my whole life story now. <laughs> <laughs> She's my lovely. She was also a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford's Reuters Institute and most recently managing director of PA Media. The wonderful thing about Potty is that she was born in Camden. She still lives there as a wonderful husband and two children. And I think passing on to Tim, I think that's kind of relevant, yeah. really, to where we want to go with this conversation. Because Yeah, because I think yeah. in, in relational suit, we always try and um, learn um, something about the person um, as well as the topic, um, don't we, uh, Beverly? And uh, mm -hmm. I think that's something that you do so well in the book. Polly and um the other, the other thing yeah and the other thing that um really struck us uh, when we read it and looking back at it again today um is a theme of dreams and uh you've got the joy division quotes at the start there um and also the notion of um of dreaming and imagination does run as a thread um through the book and because you're uh a Camden resident growing up in Camden, we were wondering about, you know, what your hopes and dreams were uh, growing up and what your journey was um, to come to be interested in the child welfare system and to write this book. Well, listen, and thank you guys for having me on. Thank you so much for that lovely, lovely introduction. And <laughs> it's so interesting when you write a book um, how... You, how much you think about your process and you sweat over the messages and then someone reads it and they take something completely different away from it so that hopes and dreams is a lovely kind of positive way of reading the reading the book and you know I I, I kind of I really don't want people to think this is a really depressing book because I think it is 
full of hope for doing things better and finding different ways for the state to work with people who need who need help and support and so um you know it's, it's a lovely lovely kind of interpretation of it um and I guess kind of growing up in Camden god going all the way back and thinking about what my hopes and dreams were you know what I I think all my life I really didn't know what I was going to do when I grow up and I'm not sure I still do <laughs> no. um, I, I think I, I I knew I cared about the world I cared about how things work and I think growing up in Camden, Camden's so diverse that I had a group of friends who lived in council estates on York Way and then in mansion houses in Hampstead. So I think kind of that that inner city life, going to comprehensive in inner city London, just gives you a really strong kind of class perspective on the world. I could see the inequalities and I was kind of somewhere in the middle quite middle-class parents, not loads of money. My parents ran the local party shop in Camden. Oh, right. So they had a kid's party shop. And um, they went into business because they had kids really young and they were like, what do we know how to do? We know how to do kids' parties. (laughs) And and I think think that kind of experience kind of, I, I always, I think in all my reporting subsequently as a journalist, I think... I always had a really strong class lens on every story because I had had such a diversity and experience um, growing up. And it did feel, even though it's really multicultural, to me, growing up in Camden, class felt like the strongest divider, in a way, in people's experiences. And I think I see that through all the research and, and the stories I've heard from my book in in um in the social work system um and I see it in a lot of other different places as well so I think I think that would be the kind of influence of my Camden childhood and that was a driver for you when you started to when you turned towards the topic then and started to meet people yeah I think so but I think it was probably earlier in my career but the reason I, I got into this subject was because I was working for Tortoise Media and it's just, it was it's about three years old now. We can't call it a startup anymore. But right at the beginning, one of the first investigations the editor there, James Harding, wanted to do was to look at the rising numbers of children in care and to find out why that was happening. Is it right that the state is separating so many families? Are we making the right decisions in the right way with the right consequences? Um, and Tortoise gives you loads of time to go out and listen to people. And we also did lots of events where we brought people together. And I spent time traveling around the country, listening to families who were affected and professionals. And I just had a lot of time. And I think this story needs that much time to see it from all the different angles and get the different perspectives on it from, you know, each of the chapters in the book tells the story of a different person. And I hope that reveals something about about the whole system as well. So I interviewed parents, mothers and fathers, um, social workers, lawyers, um, school workers, and I spent spent some time with a judge as well. And I think kind of seeing it from across those perspectives, I hope 
it gets to the complexity of the story that that I think the story deserves. And that sort of um, visibility of um, of people in the system, you know, and there's, there's reference there about, um, you know, uh, again, that theme of um, the title of the book, actually, um, which becomes more and more pertinent as you, to the reader, um, um, uh, as you read. Um, and did, when did you start to think about about that as as a title and what's the meaning of that for you? I think it was quite late on and actually it's kind of even in the time since since we decided on the title so behind closed doors um it part of it was about how the the kind of um the secrecy around the family courts and the mm. fact that we can't report. And actually that's changing now. <coughs> yeah, some movement on transparency at last. Yeah, exactly. Because of at brilliant last. work mm. by mm. Louise Tickle and others that mm. has really kind of shifted the bar there. But it's also about the fact that these are the most private things that happen in private spaces and private families. And I think it's like the sharpest end of where people meet the state you 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 know the state really really matters when you're giving birth or you're ill or you're dying or you're being educated but actually in in that intervention in family life it feels like the biggest power the state has and it happens behind closed doors and mm. those doors are are not just about they're about privacy um but they're also about a lot of the shame that surrounds this and and the fact that people can't talk about it because it's so awful what happens to people all the people the families the children the relatives you know this is there's so much shame and that that closes the doors I think there's also you know going back to the class perspective um you know this this happens mostly to poorer people and we have uh you know a lot of the people who decide what goes in the media and what stories we tell it's not about their families it's not about um people they know and I think so there's a kind of an inequality there Mm. and and a lack of understanding because you know people in power don't see what's happening and when you see what's happening and how people's lives are being affected it's really really shocking and when you relate to them as human beings which I hope the stories in the book kind of help you to do. I hope people will stop and think of, you know, are we doing the right thing all the time? Could we do better? What more could we do to do better? So that wasn't just a function of you telling the story. That's something, um, uh, a view, a position that you take that people need to need to understand people in the system. And yeah, I think people need to be able to relate to to what's happening and see you know you know see the human side of the story and the experience mm. and go god what would i do in that situation mm. um and you give I mean, something of yourself in that as well mm. polly you you reveal um, um something of yourself in in the book as well as well as well as sort of commenting on others kath kids and um uh, yeah. decor and and so on you also take us behind your yeah, um, your closed door to some degree was that important to you? Yeah, I think I think in how you 
build relationships with people it's important to to be really kind of open about your own experiences and you know my experience of social services was absolutely tiny you know really really tiny um and involved a social lovely lovely social worker and a lovely um health visitor turning up at my door and asking to come in and see me and my daughter after my daughter had had a horrible burns accident and um and they were they were so lovely um and and you know looked at the situation and never came came back again but i i started playing with that kind of scenario what would have needed to be different and it was mm. it was actually quite hilarious because that morning that they turned up the cleaner had just been because a working mama had cleaner and I had a morning off work. So I was sat at the table with my daughter. We both had aprons on and we were doing a lovely painting together. Now I think I can count on one hand how many times I actually did paintings with my daughter um, to my shame, you know, um, but they came into this kind of blissful scene, which was really unusual because usually my house is chaos and, I'm at work and dogs everywhere, and, you know, all of that. And um, and, and so I, I started kind of trying to understand what would have been different. What would they have to have seen to have responded differently? And, and that brought me back actually quite strongly to the class element as well. Mm. You know, if I had had no food in my house and I didn't have a cleaner, and I didn't have any space and was really stressed out, you know, what, would the response have been different and would I have got help from that response or, or something else? There are other times when I'm sure I would have been really glad mm. for the help. But, um, yeah, so I think it's important to reveal something about yourself. Um, yeah. dare, dare I say, Polly, that some of the, the, the ways of, your ways of being in terms of the storytelling in the book and the power of those stories um, and how you go you go behind those closed doors and start to really reveal, you know, and it's like a, a peeling away, a peeling away. So you get to the core of, you know, what are the things that are really haunting this system? Because people are being haunted. You know, there is a sense of, you know, this uh, ghosting of people because you, you're, in, you're trapped in context, in situations that you're, you can't influence. You know, poverty is there. It's got its grip on you. You know, the system knows your history. The system knows your past history. The system knows um, about that particular community, what it thinks it knows about that community. So if you were walking into a household, uh, I can tell you what would have been constructed in a different context. You know, there would have been a lot of suspicion about a mother sitting there, you know, with a sort of apron on, you know, ready to do some painting with her daughter. Oh, what's this about? You know, there would have been a real kind of, cynical response in some spaces and that's what's really difficult is that you know when people are trying to demonstrate I think I get what I need to be doing there's such a sort of feeling of not being trusted or believed that it kind of recycles again into kind of negative negative disconnectedness people don't get to connection they disconnect even further away from each other become even more suspicious and we know that if we don't have trust in any system or trusting with each other how do we function now, how can we function? How can we be productive? How can we move forward? So for me, the way you reveal these stories, you know, and the way that they are written, you know, they really open up to others who never may think about 
these families in their everyday lives or just see that headline figure, you know, in the media that kind of captures really kind of binary pictures, you know, failing social worker, bad parent, evil people, and doesn't actually see people in that whole, that whole context of how do you actually live your lives. And I think you've done a fantastic piece of work, the way that you're listening, because the way the stories are written, you, I, can, I can feel your almost your process of listening, the way you've written it. So to me, it was incredibly striking because we hear people talk stories, but seeing it written in that way and the way you put them together, you know, it just, it becomes almost inevitable, you know, that it's, it's, it's that statement, somebody's got to do something about this, something's got to really change here because it is, isn't it, a revelation of, you know, some really difficult issues around the state and, and, citizens and vulnerable citizens because remember people are citizens they have the same rights as others but are not in a position to even exercise them because of that power the power of the state is very is very strong in those stories you know other the othering that people talked about everybody isn't it is 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 revealing something around being othered by the experience of the state i thought go on tim no i thought what you were saying that that quote from baroness hale about you know we are all frail human beings and one of the conclusions yeah. I felt that you came to when you talked about um, people that were doing their best, um, you know, parents, um, young people, social workers, um, um, judges uh, were that, you know, they were exploring uh, their own frailties as well and acknowledging um, of that and the, that trust gap that you talked about in the book, you know, how to overcome, how to overcome the the trust gap, and perhaps um, being real and uh, real about the um, our frailties and our similarities, our mutuality with the with other people in the system is a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because I think in all of that, I learned something you know, about journalism as well, because, you know, I've been a journalist all my career and I love journalism. I think it's a really important function in a democracy. But I hit, in this in this kind of reporting and this story, I hit up against a real problem that quite often um, journalists and editors kind of demand perfect case studies, the perfect hero social worker, the perfect victim parent you know like these and you know this story is all about the imperfections in us all mm-hmm. and you know a lot of what I write about could be construed as criticism of social workers and I think it's really really important to say that what I think number one I think the responsibility to care for children goes so way beyond social workers. It's about the whole of society pulling together. And social workers are just one really important element of that. And the the other is that I think social workers aren't being set up for success at the moment because they don't have the time, the resources, the Mm. flexibility. You know, and I know this is so different in so many areas of the country, you know, the vastly different in Camden than in... I won't name another one, but, you know, Bradford, um, um, there is such diversity in in social work practice. Um, But, you know, the the time and resources they're given to support families 
and spend time and earn that trust and find the help those families need. That's where I think kind of the real problem is that we, at the moment, we are increasingly spending more and more on children being in the care system and less and less on all the early help and intervention and support that would prevent that, but also might make a better judgment and a quicker judgment for all the children that are missed and left too long in horrible, horrible situations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not saying the social work profession is perfect. I'm saying that I met the most amazing, inspirational social workers, um, but I saw a system that was not allowing them to do their best job in every circumstance. And you, because you talk about risk, risk being baked in, um, and I wonder what are some of the ingredients there. You know, what's what's happening that um, that uh, that risk uh, lens um, is so strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you guys are probably much better <laughs> yeah. place yeah, to kind of understand that. Yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you pick up something really important, Polly, when you talk about the context of the political times that political times that uh, a practice such as social work operates in. So, you know, it's buffeted a hell of a lot by that, that wider, that wider social and political context. So, leading up to, you know, the moment we are at now, we have a very important national safeguarding review happening because of the death of these two, you know, beautiful uh, young children very recently. And the danger that, that, well, as I read through your book, the danger I felt was, God, are we going to go back down to that baby Peter story mm. again, where because of the, the horror of it all, that we then get these reactions which push the system, you know, again into this is what we should be doing and bring it, bring, brings about that, that sense that you have to keep prescribing, you know, keep giving the prescription, add more and more rules, more and more requirements, more and more. You know, we've had politicians make, make suggestions of the scintilla of risk, get the children out, you know. The, you know, the, the reality of what you explore in this book, the everyday reality of what it is to live in poverty, you know, with, with you know, vulnerabilities, you know, with deep isolation. It doesn't marry up, does it, with scintilla of risk, get them out, you know. You know? It's, it, that response does not get as close, does it? to what we really yeah. need as a society to be doing or saying around how do we support children, you know, the poorest of our children, yeah, those that we are noticing and those, as you say, that are left and not noticed because the resourcing is so thinly stretched. Now, how do we get the response from our politicians, again, you know, from that political system, again, that won't shove that profession back into that reactive, defensive place? Because, you know, that's what the risk monster, it's Clover Stone and others have reported it as being. That's what it does. It then it captures all of our fear of getting it wrong, all of our all of our shame, you know, of getting it wrong as a profession. Because when each child, you know, is injured uh, in these really huge cases, but also in the everyday world of practice, you know, we are experiencing where children are being harmed or where we have not, we have not noticed early enough what that harm is actually doing. You know, social workers inculcate shame as well, you know, inculcate guilt as well. And we need a system that really kind of 
as an evangelist says, you know, we need to get rid of blame and we need to get shame out of it. And that works for the professionals, you know, as well as it is in terms of our relationship with families. There's such a mirroring for me. Everything I read in the book, I can mirror that with the professionals that I've worked with. You know, there's issues of, you know, that, that kind of fear of change, that kind of fear of being challenged, you know, the feeling of being shamed, not wanting to say that you are a social worker because of the embarrassment that you may feel that there's a sense that social workers are these fiendish characters. And, and that prevents us having the deep conversations that we need to have about how do we become, you know, humane practitioners? You know, how do we become relational practitioners? How do we acknowledge, like you did in your book, you know, I've had an experience that really affected me. You know, it affected me. And I saw what that power could do. You know, we need to acknowledge that as social workers, don't we? We need to be able to acknowledge that. We can't do that in a system, you know, that's all about blame and shame. But we, we mirror it. We mirror it back to the families and the communities that we contact because we're experiencing this falling places still in the system. We experience shame and blame every day, you know, as well as the really good things that we can see emerging, you know, in the practice space. That is, that is all sort of happening. You know, I think it's I think, one of the yeah. fundamental problems is that, you know, every few years the spotlight falls on this when, when, when a child dies and... Um, and the political temperature gets ramped up around it. And that just kind of like ricochets through the system and puts the fear of God into, you know, everybody who's making these decisions day by day, don't, you know, I can't let that happen. Um, and so when you look at the system overall, where is the accountability? Actually, that's where the accountability is. And there's no there's no systematic measuring, assessing and rewarding for the families who are kept together safely and for, who are helped and who are supported. And because you can't you can't measure the lives that are, are not lost. And, you know, and actually the bigger story of the lives that that suffer less. Um, so, you know not to in any way underplay how devastating and awful it is when when those things happen and of course we don't know the circumstances of what happened mm. Mm. with Arthur Labinio Hughes and with mm. Star Hobson yet mm. Mm. um but if the whole if you if you say we need to reform the system because of that you'll get one very different response then if you say we need to reform the system because we are removing too many children and we are missing too many children at the same mm, time, that mm, double mm. failure, mm. Um, you know, and of course we are also helping thousands and thousands of children and families every day. I'm talking about kind of at the extremes here mm. and, you know, that mixed picture. But, you know, if you want to improve the system, you've got to define what the problem you're fixing first is. Um, because you'll get very different responses. Um, and well, I, hope, I hope we don't see what happened after Baby P, where you had that mm. big spike in mm. um, child removals. But I, I, do you get any kind of sense from your networks that there has been any response to that? Um, I don't get that sense from my networks. What I get a sense of is an anxiety that we're going to be forced down to a particular position or despite the fact that we do have, you know, a, a, a work being, you know, independently commissioned to review the whole of the system. And we're hoping, you know, that these two, 
these two sets of activities, you know, the, the panel review into those awful cases, and then, you know, the, whatever the, the, the care review says, you know, there is an intention that they make sure that they are talking to each other and understand each other, because what we don't want to do is to have that knee jerk where we just narrow ourselves back down, you know, into that terrible little tunnel again, you know, and forget the bigger story. You know, the bigger story is the mass removal of children in uh, England and Wales. You know, this is the reality of what's happened to children's services over the many years. And even the language of how we relate to it and how families are talking about um, the system. People still talk about social services, you know, and, and have a kind of sort of modernity view of social services. They're supposed to be helpers and supposed to be doing excellent Children's services have been narrowing and narrowing down because it's been managing demand for years and years and years in the context of austerity as well, which is really important to remember. But that narrowing down into the focus on that particular set of relationships between children and their families, divorced from you know what's going on in their wider communities, divorced from what's going on in the wider social systems that they live in. You know, living housing, they live on estates, they they're in they're in schools. I mean, you know, I know Sandra very well. You know, that was my that was my walking ground and my practice ground for many, many years. I really recognised, you know, it's Kim, isn't it, Kim, you know, and, and what she was doing there, you know, in, in a poor in a poor borough, you know, where there is high demand, where there's high levels of poverty, and where there's sort of generational repeat recurrences of children going into the system, coming out of the system, for their children to go into the system, you know. So there is... There is a need to hold on to, if we're thinking about reform, hold on to those bigger picture, big, the bigger pictures that you were trying to kind of, can I say that a writer tries to paint, but you were kind of, you know, painting those bigger pictures for us as you were taking us through these individual stories about actually there's so much complexity going on here. Uh, you've done a great job of making it simple for people to see because you've painted it so well, but you cannot look at families that you're who are sharing their stories with you without looking at all of those contextual, mm. you know, um, issues that are impacting and affecting in those situations. And then, then the state comes to them, you know, and creates a lot of pain in its dynamic, rather than it being this helping system that makes it easier to negotiate a difficult <coughs> life. Mm. It's something it very difficult. Go on, Tim, I'm getting well, into you know it. <laughs> you know that, but I did, I saw somewhere um, a review of the book saying it was a page turner. And there, I, I think... Um, it is. <laughs> It really, and there was one bit I was reading about, um, you know, um, uh, Justice Mumby, you know, the former president of the Family Division, and lovely bit where he, he, the place where he lives is quintessentially where you'd imagine <laughs> retired and judged to live. It was so, glorious. Yeah, yeah <laughs> he did that nice bit of taking us, of taking us there. Just to set the scene for the audience, he lived in this beautiful cottage in the woods, miles from anywhere, and it was kind of like hobbity, hobbity, and there were like the stacks of books absolutely everywhere, and rose bushes outside. It was like it was like a fairy tale. And there's this sort of moment of drama where you say, "Right, come on then," and you ask him um, about um, you know why so many children are going into care. And his answer is, yeah, we simply don't know. We are very much operating in, in the dark. Mm. And, um, and I think, you know, um, as we've been talking about this sort of thing that we call the system, it's sort of uh, mm. a projection in, in, in some ways. And I, I suppose to continue the, the, 
I don't want to labour the uh, dreams uh, point that I made earlier, but um, you know, people are afraid of the dark, aren't they? And uh, it takes me that makes me think about the the bit in the book which references the meeting that we had um, in Kentish Town um, in Camden, and we were all there, and um, we'd um, fronted up and said that we were social workers and a couple of a couple of the parents there gave us a I mean it was a bit of a comedy boo yeah definitely yeah, yeah. yeah but there was intent there there was intent was a, there as well there was, <laughs> so these people there was experience isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah there was um but um yeah and it was that that interesting bit about the um trust gap and how do you how do you how do you w- w- work with that? Something that's a much bigger um, systemic problem, but perhaps we need to be um, uncomfortable more often and reckon reckon with those wider systemic dynamics on a local on a local level and make an attempt to do that more. Definitely, but also the the practice space has the confidence. You know, having a, you know, having the right leadership and culture is something that everybody identifies as an important condition for change, you know, for a shift of focus into how do we work with strength and support families. Mm. And as you're sort of hinting, probably, and then how do we become better at recognising the children that do need that intervention at times of being removed for their safety? I mean, that is, you know, the reality of the practice. That is the reality of the world because we have... I mean, I I don't I've I've never seen I've never I think I've, I sort of construct this always as you know how do you work in the hardest of conditions you know and you and you are in a world where you are um, you know having to make this decision around about removal, um, but the context is that you you're able to maintain that human you know that humanity you know that that connection with people that this is why this this is why this has to happen. Um, and it's not because you're being blamed or you're bad. It's because these circumstances are just not tolerable for a young person, but they're not tolerable for you either, are they? Yeah. So how do we think about then helping, you know, and the automatic movement to away from family, you know, was a change in the in the practice that I saw. Because if we were doing that kind of moving children, it was moving them to a bit of the family that could hold them while we were intensely working you know, with the family that, uh, the household, you know, the household where the child lives, about what could we do? How can we work with, how can we support? The idea that they would be coming into the state permanent care, you know, it's, it's relatively new, you know, it's relatively new, you know, if you think about it, 30 years of the Children Act and the numbers of children, in, there were numbers of children in care under the old system, but you can't really compare the apples and pears, you know, they're very, very different what happened before 89, because um, lots of children are in care because of stealing a, seen in a polo you know from the local Swedish shop because it was a sort of youth justice kind of system you know if you committed a, a, a defense as a young person you could end up on a care order you know the card because the counselors could you know could go to juvenile court and get a care order for you so they start to compare the past to what's the, the last one to you that movement up you know and that, that those policy drivers around adoption and permanency and and etc you know really kind of moved the practice Away well, I think from you've thought more could, and more about yeah. that kind of really reflecting, you know, political trends, what was happening, yeah. the political dialogue, but also, you know, parenting has changed since I was a kid. I got mm. smacked on the bum, like all my friends got smacked yeah. on the bum when we were naughty. 
you know, and, um, you know, I'm not in any way saying that was the right thing or the wrong thing. It's just what happened in the 80s. And that that's not acceptable now. And we also now understand so much more about emotional abuse and the really big impact that emotional abuse has. So, you know, we understand the problems better. We understand we have higher standard of parenting now, I believe, than we did all that time ago. But we haven't put in and worked out how the state supports people to meet that new mm. test and those new kind of levels. And, mm. you know, so much of what I say in, in the kind of concluding chapter where I kind of offer some thoughts about the future, very influenced by our conversations and conversations with others in the sector about how we can build a system that really values relationships mm. and makes a human connecting point between the state and families when they need help and earns the trust um, and sets the right scene for challenge as well Mm -hmm. as kind of support um, Mm -hmm. but to be better and I think kind of like a a lot of what I talk about is is shifting the spending from the care system into support for families time for social workers to work with families Mm-hmm. making sure that the best social workers stay on the front line and don't get kind of dragged into paperwork and other things but you know actually rescuing social work the work of social workers mm-hmm. to actually work with families um but um I, like I do also question whether whether it it's possible to rebuild the trust in the profession and I've been reading um, a lot about kind of the debate around defunding the police in America. And um, there's a, an amazing uh, academic in America called Dorothy Roberts who writes. Oh, she's my friend. <laughs> she's, like, she's got a book coming out next month That's with right, like, yeah, defunding yeah. social work in America, basically saying the system is so broken, we need to reform it. And I and I've thought, I've thought about this a lot and I've really struggled with the idea and I have written about it in the book um, because I think the problem is social work is working, can work. It does work in some areas of the country. It is doing good work. Social workers are being allowed to do good work in, in areas of the country. It's just in the areas where it's not working, it's a real mess. It's really, and it's not about the social workers, it's about the system. I just want to keep on saying that. Um, but what I what I wonder is whether actually the title social worker is not helping the system anymore. And if you really explicitly um, organised children's um, services um, for children for for families to express that part of it is there to help you can you you might be able to get further if you really expressly faced the public with a family support system and then a child protection system which is much smaller and brought in when when it really needs to do that um whether that would be a a, a new way to engage the public and and to to help families by saying we are you know our job is to help you it's not to police you or take you to court and there's another group of people who will get involved if it gets to that point and whether that would really liberate the workforce to do 
the supportive work that you know most most social workers I've met came here to do you know they came into the profession to help and we've just not set up a system that allows that at the moment Tim what do you think of that some deep stuff there Polly (laughs) yeah yeah, and controversial this and controversial but also I mean my view necessary necessary to put it put it out there because it's if we're looking for fundamental changes, that means we have to look deeply at, at the profession. I have to say to you, I spent many years kind of saying, I don't know if social work is a profession. And the reason I've said that is because we're state actors and we work, we are part of an agent, we are agents of the state. We are empowered by the state. And um, although professionals really moan about regulation, they often are regulating themselves. You know, we're regulated by the state in England. Social mm-hmm. England is a state board. You know, so there's always this issue for me about why we wanted professional status and why we have campaigned for years for professional status has all sorts of very strange and interesting histories, you know, mm-hmm. because there was a point where we didn't think of ourselves as a profession, but as a kind of social service, as it was called, you know, as a service yeah. in our society, you know, that kind of that kind of idea that we were there, you know, to find the gaps and do the gluing and the bonding around our communities and around our children and families. Mm-hmm. You know, my late husband was a Birmingham settlement social worker, which mm-hmm. means he lived on the settlement. He lived in the place. The flat was there. Mm-hmm. Families would knock on the door, you know, and say, Mr. Jolyon, such and such a thing's happening up the road and so-and-so's doing this to so-and-so, you know, and they would reach him out in that way. There wasn't this really complicated regulatory body that we have, and I often talk to young social workers about being in a world before regulated social work and being in a world after regulated social work. There were clearly very important things about regulation, like the safety of the practitioner, mm. you know, the ensuring that they're not dangerous people coming to fashion. But there are other things that we've lost, you know, the freedom to act, you know, and to create and to do things on your local patch base that was responding to your community. That went away because we've become a case management practice yeah. and that really there were real shifts in the 2000s and we're seeing the outcomes of that now aren't we in some ways mm. you know these big policy shifts and what have they actually delivered in the end more children in care <laughs> you know more children living in poverty etc 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 it's not all down to social work but we've got a really important role in that and I think your your thing in that book about you know Paul Bywaters and others talking about you know the the poverty blind practice mm-hmm. you know this you mm-hmm. know there are so many powerful words that I wrote <laughs> about isolation and loneliness, connectedness, you know. I love this phrase, parental rights being exchanged for parental resources. I mean, God, you know, there are so many problems, aren't mm-hmm. there, in the, in, the, in the relational practice that we have right now with our families. And it's amazing that every conversation I have about this, I learn something new. Like in what you've just had said, mm-hmm. I heard about a whole, you know, a whole dimension, just my use of the word profession that I'd never really examined before. And it's just, you know, there's a there's whole, there's so many books to write about this. There's so much complexity. It really is. So <laughs> uh, I, I guess I, I, I mean, I, I was using the term profession in quite a, a throwaway kind of yeah. way. I didn't, I didn't mean to put any weight on, on that term. Yeah. I kind of meant the workforce, but but you know, you've just shone such a light on on. Yeah, it's really that, interesting, you know, because yeah. it's like there's so many debates about we should be treated like doctors. And I thought, oh, really? I'm not mm. sure about that, you know, because you know, you know, 
uh, we have these imagined, I think it goes back to you, Tim, the hopes and the dreams. We have this imagined period, which I am part of, you know, but which, which wasn't Halcyon because I also know, I didn't know what I know now. I didn't understand enough about brain development because we, we didn't have the science, you know, we didn't have the knowledge. So in that sense, we become more and more of a profession, as it were, in terms of how we think about our evidence base, how we think about the way that we situate our understanding in the day to day. But um, that's also been at a cost, you know, that's been at a cost. And we need to weigh up the harms there then, don't we? The harms that have happened in terms of moving away from being with, because we're trying to work back to being with across mm -hmm. all sorts of change systems, you know, to what actually happened in terms of becoming more of a profession, becoming more evidence-based, becoming more regulated, becoming case management-based rather than sort of case, family case-led, really change the relationships. I can tell you my journey, it was from a Pulsar cabin right in the centre of the green in Tipton, <laughs> where you were on your patch, to a great big warehouse on the outer, outer banks of Birmingham, where you were just there with a little great desk where you weren't allowed to put anything on it. That's what happened to a, the practice of social work. You know, the profession got put into these places. So the idea that we need to be breaking out, you know, it, it's always been... <laughs> A necessity for me you know it's always been a necessity but I would never give up I have to say to you Polly the term social work or social worker yeah. because I go back to the history you know of why it grew in the first place the complexities the racism and the supremacy in it but also the real recognition there was a role for people to be supported to help people across all of their difficulties not just because they're not feeling very well today mm. or not just because their kid's mm. not in school, you know? The comprehensive nature of what social worker was was what attracted mm. a lot of us to it because it means you're working with humans. Nobody works with humans in the complex ways that social work could and can do. Yeah. Again. Over to you, Tim. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, because <laughs> there is a paradox there, isn't there? And, yes. and, and rightly a worry about um, uh, risk-averse... Uh, practice the risk monster over intervention um but you know for me i mean we've got uh, a slogan you know closer to people and so the notion that um you know camden's a village with all of its many uh crossroads and intersections um that we can learn as well as professionals and be with people and and um you know acknowledge that's there in the book the human frailties and we're all a mix of lived and learned experience and uh you know if we can sort of um design services together you know work out what works best for communities with communities um that would seem to me to be um the best way forward but at the same time i don't think well, right now we certainly can't. You can't sort of resile from the powers that are there or your responsibility as a as a local authority officer. And I think sometimes there's talk about um, you know sharing power and um, working in ways which is it, at that end is perhaps even disingenuous. And our yeah. our friends Becca Davis got this phrase surfacing power which i think mm. um is what does is, that mean about, yeah, talk about that a bit more, suppose, talk about that a bit more. Yeah. i suppose sort of you know acknowledging as you say um in the book polly you know that 
something always breaks when you remove a child. Um, and I think that seeing that really clearly stated is a powerful one for, for me, um, you know, because there is sometimes, I think, in some quarters in social work, um, a reticence to acknowledge that the system does do harm um, um, by um, its, its nature, because we all have good intentions, we've all got good intentions and come into that thing. That was an interesting one for me when Beverly was talking about profession, this thing that we call a profession, we come into with good intentions. So to then to feel that we need to, um, you know, countenance the fact that the system that we're a willing part of and have invested um, time and our hopes in, that that's, that system um, does harm uh, uh, to people as well as good. Um, it's hard, I think, to get your head around, but it's something we need to do. That's the journey of being social work and working in all of these cross threads and 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 paradoxes that paradox of love and abuse which you mm -hmm. really yeah you know, living so it, well in the book so well the so well explored yeah, yeah. that uh, yeah. that paradox yeah yeah that's beautiful that's beautiful Tim as usual that's just so beautiful what you what you what you've uh, expressed there but there is that I. I I told a story a while ago because I did a little talk about myself, which I don't often do, talk about my own experience too much in the public space. But I, I, I talked about working as a children's guardian and um, and being being notorious for wanting golden elephants. You know, I was, I was always told, oh, she'll be wanting golden elephants yet. And I used to say, well, if this if the queen can have nannies, why can't my dad? You know, <laughs> because he's got to be able to go, why can't he have nannies? Won't that be cheaper? You know? Uh, you know, you know, I put things like that. But one of the judges I worked with was a wonderful judge called Judge Onions, and he was a former boxer, and he he looked like a former boxer. He had this kind of real kind of punchiness about him, and real, real sense. And he often used to say to me, you know, what what do we do here? You know, Mrs. Barnett, you know, it's a lesser of two harms. You know, bring them into a system where there's un often uncertainty about their futures, where there's patterns of instability, particularly for older children who come to the system. I have to distinguish that the experience of younger children who come through is different to older children who enter. It's a very different kind of set of scenarios for them. But that, that unknown, the unknown of that, mm. and the risk of instability in a child's life, which so much of them experience in the care system, and the family that they have, you know, maybe not good enough yet, but with support and time and help, could be good enough. You know, he often used to put that and often would say, no, I'm not going to agree the removal because he wanted the local forces to go back and do a bit more, you know, demonstrate a bit more. And that was always in, in my mind as a practicing social worker, you know, that we had this understanding, you know, that there was in every time we separated or we removed, we would, there was harm happening because I don't know, I think it might have been, I, think I will say, I think it might have been because I was a black social worker. I knew a lot about the sense of dislocation and separation because it's part of our big story. You know, mm -hmm. if I go back 500 years, you know, the idea of, of loss and removal from family and you know, a change of identity was a very powerful driver for me, you know, in my practice. But it was also there in my training and with the, and with the very experienced social workers I met when I was a baby social worker. They had a very kind of strong view that, you know, you know if you break things, it harms, isn't it? You know, and we need to recognise the consequences of that. And so try not to break them in the first place, which meant that sometimes we made decisions that were very risky and we're not going to be the right ones in the end. 
you know, but it also meant we made brave decisions that turned out to be, what I've done all right, <laughs> you know. You know, we weren't social engineering. We often used to talk about we're not social engineers, you know, as a, as a language in the practice those days, that we're not social engineers, we're not here to, we're not here to kind of, you know, uh, create uh, lives to children that they may never have had. You know, that's not what the business is about. You know, I often used to say, if you want to do that, you need to go into a different role, but I won't name it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bev, you've got to write your book. BBJ, we, we should say we've begged, we've taken Polly past. Um, oh, we have. Well, of course, past, so we've been a bit longer. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if um, Polly has a, a, a last. Um, Sign off, really. Whether you've you've what do you think now? You've uh, got the book out there in the world, and what are you thinking? Um, well, it's only just out there, so it's kind of the moment where you sit quietly and think, what what are people going to think of it? What impact is it going to have? I'm really glad that um, people with influence are reading it, um, and with so much potential reform coming up this year um I hope that that it will in some small way set the scene for that um and so there'll be there'll be bits of of publicity and radio and and I've written for various publications over the next few weeks but really I kind of go back into listening mode what do people think and um you know the the key thing I really want people to take away from it is number one that this is happening because I think lots of people don't know that this is happening um but number two how brutal the emotions around this are and how often the most marginalized poorest women in society are shamed and blamed for something that is on all of us you know, these are societal problems, isolation, mental health, um, uh, poverty. These these are kind of structural problems that manifest in individuals who then take the worst kind of blame and shame. And I think, you know, if we can do anything to steer the debate to a better place, I'll, I'll have done my job. Well, Polly, I'm, I just want to thank you for that. And I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that this massive contribution that you've made in this book, because it is a massive contribution to the practice space. Um, I'm recommending it to, to everybody at the minute. Everybody's getting a recommendation. Don't, don't bother to read that. Read this. This will really <laughs> get you to where, because if rapid change is going to come, people need to get a context. So you lay that out brilliantly. Thank you. Thank you so much, Polly, for coming along to this funny little podcast. Because, you know, we're not big players, but we're social workers. And we know that social workers will really listen to this podcast and we put it out there. There's some lovely pieces there and I really felt it, you know. So thank thank you for that. I just think it's marvellous. Thank you so much. Social work, really, Polly Curtis. Where future is happening, you're definitely in that future space because uh, it deeply has to change. And if it changes there, our society will change, won't it? Because our society needs to change. Yeah. That's what social work was always about, you know, changing our society, you know. That's and, that, and those, <laughs> those um, stories, stories like Caitlin's, have just not been there. They've been filtered out and presented in, in quite sort of, um, you know, 
ways that have been moderated and um so mm -hmm. to really take uh, people to the stories in a more direct mm -hmm. uh, way it's really really an important thing so that message about some you know citizen visibility mm -hmm. and also that that we're all you know frail. we're all connected yeah yet it's all doing our best uh, but with we're all fallible it's like really was a real strong strong thing for me so um yeah i was really grateful for being able to read the book and for you to come and talk to us <laughs>